City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Welcome to City Limits. It's the fifth Wednesday of the month and on fifth Wednesday we're going to be talking today after a number of other items to Josh Cullinan. He's from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union and we're going to talk to him about how he got to form the union, how they've taken on the Shop Assistance Union, which everyone knows is a very right-wing conservative union, and the, the concessions, the wonderful things he's won for workers in that industry over that time, but also how they get standing in the courts, because I imagine the other union would be opposing their right to appear. So there's a number of items, and maybe a bit of Josh's own background as to how he came to form the whole thing. So we'll talk to Josh in the last half of the show. But first, a few other items. So I did say last week I'd get onto that AMP situation, which I'll talk about at length shortly. Uh, which we mentioned some weeks ago where a bloke who, in fact, they paid out half a million to settle a sexual harassment claim against him in 2017, but he's just been made head of one of their, of their most important area, the AMP investment area, and um, there's been quite a furor over it. We mentioned it a few weeks ago, but the furor goes on, so we'll come back to that shortly. I haven't mentioned who we are. Mm. By, um, Meg Kimber's out there um, today. We're all out there because we're in our own home, so everyone else is out there from us. <laughs> I'm Kevin Healy, Karina's organising the show, and I haven't even poured the tea. Hang on, here we go, I'll just pour some tea. There, pour tea. <laughs> and um, and Meg, um, how are you getting on in lockdown and Karina? Yeah, not bad. Was, I mean, Karina and I can see each other over Zoom, and while you were pouring tea, she was pouring a coffee, and I just had a moment of just feeling sad that we're not in the studio, and I can't just reach over the console and grab a cup of tea from you, Kevin. Yeah, it must be awful for you. Yeah. This must be one of the great hurts of this program, really. It is. You know, like I have to make my own tea. I'm like, what's going on here? Oh, <laughs> good God. You haven't got me to make the tea for you. It's awful. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> what tea are you drinking today? Uh, white tea. I've decided I, on days when we do the show, I've now white because John McPherson, who comes on once a month, he, he loves the white tea. Right. So I always make white tea on day. And of course, it is Monday today. Let's let listeners know we record on Monday now. Yep. But I made it white tea today. So once a week, that's what I have. Yeah. I see. There you are. Well, lovely. But yeah, there was a story in the last week that wholesale electricity prices are at their lowest in five years. But incredibly... It's not being reflected, you might have noticed, in our electricity bills. Mm. Even though they're paying a lot less at the wholesale level, the retail level ain't reflecting that, which is pretty hard to believe, isn't it? Crazy. That's just a thought. Yeah. Ivanka Trump, the daughter of the American president, she came out this week and said that people are unemployed should simply learn another skill and look for a different job. She told them to find something new. Uh-uh. And uh, an American commentator called Edward Luce, commenting on this, said for years, um, uh, four years, that's F-O-U-R years, after Donald Trump vowed to elevate the forgotten American, his daughter is interfering with the script. If there were an award for misunderstanding economics, Ms. Trump should receive it. No one wants to hear they are to blame for being unemployed. In April, the U.S. lost a record 20.5 million jobs. This did not mean that 20 million Americans had suddenly lost their skills. It meant the U.S. economy was put into lockdown. As a benchmark of disconnectedness, Marie Antoinette could hardly have done better. Ms. Trump's outsized role in American life epitomizes more than just her father's administration. She is little different from close relatives of many wealthy Americans who have mistaken their inheritance for a license to lecture those less fortunate. Mm. It is not her misreading of the jobs market that sets her apart. It is the fact that she and and Jared Kushner, her husband, are the U.S. president's closest advisors. Her role extends far beyond U.S. workforce training. After the tear gas had cleared from Lafayette Square last month, Miss Trump took a Bible from her $2,200 Max Mara handbag and handed it to her father amid America's post, and it goes on. So huh. just that a banker's doing a great job at the moment um, <laughs> for her father. <laughs> and her husband, of course, is the main advisor on Middle East, sorting out the 
the Middle East, well, the Israeli-Palestine conflict by totally supporting the Israeli cause, of course. Mm. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's just funny how um, American um, government works, that a president comes in and then puts all of their friends and family and everything into these advisory positions. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's uh, I, I feel like I know a fair bit about American politics, but that aspect of it, I really don't understand. No, it, it isn't interesting. Well, it's also the rear window yesterday. It was called, I think it's what it's called at noon on Sundays on Radio mm. National yesterday, Sunday, yeah. uh, as we speak now. It was about the fact that the right to vote is not a right in America. There's no constitutional no. right to have a vote. And uh, it talked about how, we, as we know from, you know, it still goes on, but the blacks are particularly yep. particularly ostracised in that area and all sorts of barriers put up to them voting. Absolutely. In particular, the fact that, like, after slavery ended in America, African Americans since then have been, like, much more often targeted for criminal offences and, like, criminal things made into crimes that only apply to African-American people. And then once you have a criminal record, you're barred from voting, voting completely. So that's like a very sneaky way of keeping people away from voting. Well, they said that even now in the last election, for instance, there were black communities where they couldn't vote because there weren't enough booths, there weren't enough, you know, the yeah. access to vote wasn't made available for them while there was ample access in areas where, the, the, where they wanted the vote, uh, in the white areas. Yeah, it's concerning. I mean, I think on the one hand, the the rhetoric in America is like, well, you're free to do whatever you want. No one's going to make you vote. But in actual fact, not voting serves a very particular part of the society, which is those that are in, have more power. That's right. And of course, the great boast that anyone can become president. And I suppose Trump's good proof of that in many ways. Isn't he? All you have to do is just inherit millions of dollars from your family. <laughs> That's right. And buy your way. <laughs> Yeah. Let's go to this AMP story because it's an interesting developing story. I mentioned some weeks ago that, um, still three weeks ago now, but they appointed this bloke, Bo Pahari, B-O-E, and his second Mm. name is P-A-H-A-R-I, as head of AMP Capital. And the excuse for it was that he made lots of money for the company, therefore that was all he needed. And that a three-year-old sexual harassment case in which they paid half a million. So it wasn't a minor case, was it? It was half a million dollars settlement. And the woman had to leave, unfortunately, but he's been promoted. So she's gone and he's promoted. Mm. And of that, they said, well, they appointed him on his track record, but obviously the track record didn't include sexual harassment. Mm. But it's been developing ever since. And the, the heads of the company have made comments and the head of the CEO and the chairperson, who's David Murray, the former Commonwealth bank head, who does lots of reports for the government, very conservative economist. Have, mm. They all say, look, we don't support sexual harassment. Goodness me, no, we don't. But of course, they then say, but we're not going to sack him either. He's going to go ahead and do it because he makes lots of money for the company. Mm. And this led to, uh, early this month, even a front page headline in the Financial Review, AMP Women Stage Revolt. And a lot of the women were screaming and yelling which led to a woman called Helen Libacy, who is the only female employee left at AMP's eight-member key executive team. She held a meeting at the town hall in Sydney with women staff or staff members generally who were very upset about it. And she said at that meeting, I'm really glad that you're feeling safe to share your concerns and your feelings. I would actually love your views on how do we use it to change the culture. Not that we get rid of him, but, you know, we're going to learn from all this, aren't we? And then one staff member said it was the financial review that informed us all. Uh, Did David Murray and co. just think that we wouldn't find out about this and just thought it would be yesterday's news? Why did it not come out before we actually read it in the paper? Mm. And lots of other, you know, staff members made really sharp and attacking comments about the company. Mm. And Glibacy then said, and let me reassure you, I am the most vocal member of the global leadership team, as you would expect, around what is and what isn't acceptable behaviour. And I will constantly agitate for change and constantly agitate for consequence management where behaviours are not acceptable. Well, she didn't do that, obviously, when it comes to this particular case. It shouldn't just be on her, though. It shouldn't just be on her. As as the only woman on the board, she's already facing a lot of challenges, I'm sure. And obviously women at the, at the head of a, a board of a very influential financial company are not, not necessarily going to have a lot in common with 
women who work for a wage and face all of the challenges and inequalities that happen in that instance. But really, I feel like, yeah, it's the responsibility of everyone on the board, right? You know what I mean? That's fair comment. Yeah, she yeah. is defending it. But it's, yeah, they, the company yeah. claims it has a, its aim is to have 46% of women in top positions, but at the moment they're way, way behind and look you know, like they're never getting near it. And as I say, she's, she's one of eight, a pretty yeah. token, I would think. Yeah. And also, moving on from that meeting, the chief executive women, which is a particular group, right. President Sue Morford said the group believed in a zero-tolerance approach to sexual harassment in the workplace. Yeah. Harassment and other forms of inappropriate behaviour is made possible through power and gender imbalance, which are systemic. We as a society and as business leaders must change existing and entrenched power dynamics, culture and gender balance within our institution, she said, and these aren't people who are mad radicals, they believe in business and boardrooms and things. <laughs> yeah. But a group called Male Champions of Change declined to comment, unfortunately, uh, which has been interesting. Michelle O'Neill, from the you know, president of the ACTU, said the situation involving AMP was precisely the problem. We not only turn a blind eye to harassment, we promote the perpetrators. Yeah. Change in behaviour and culture must start at the top and be combined with tougher, clearer laws. That's why the federal government should urgently adopt the and implement the Human Rights Commission recommendation contained in the Sexual Harassment Inquiry Report. Part of the problem is we have such a corporate culture, board culture has evolved around male privilege and male entitlement and male existence, basically, because it was such a male-dominated area. And then I think what happens is that people look at that with the knowledge that they have and the experiences that they have and they think, well, why punish this one man who made a mistake? Um, and I think what that ignores is the fact that women in so many fields face so many micro-discriminations and microaggressions that just are constantly making it challenging and difficult for women to excel and achieve achieve their goals and and so I think it is fair just to have the chair of the of the women's groups I can't remember what their name was Kevin but just to have a zero tolerance policy because otherwise this culture keeps on reproducing itself because people kind of shrug and say well it's not that big a deal because I don't think that they see because we haven't historically talked as much about the things that uh, the experience of that from a woman's perspective. That's right, and that's where we're at now, of course, where yeah. the, you know, why they've done this. And that, that last Thursday, the Chanticleer column, which is a back-page column in the Financial Review and, um, written by who knows who, but they came out and said that um, his role now is to make more money for them, the jewel in AMP's crown, and so now it's up to Bo to make money, so they just ignored the whole other thing altogether. But yeah. at the same time, at least some of the big fina other financial groups have been coming out and... Uh, and super groups and superannuation funds have been have been um, asking questions. Oh, I think they should just withdraw altogether and refuse to invest there. But at least they're asking mm. some questions. And Deborah O'Neill, a Labor senator, has called for a, uh, an immediate inquiry into their decisions to slash the value of financial things, etc. But also to look at this particular case. Mm. Uh, and Senator O'Neill said she had been left almost speechless by Bahari's promotion and the company's response to the public outcry. The gap between the public declarations of Mayor Cooper and the actions of the board to put in a leader who has admitted to sexual harassment is unfathomable to me as a woman in Parliament in 2020. The emphasis placed by the staff at that meeting simply reveals how far the gap is between those leading AMP and those working there. Corporate giants, she goes on to say, should be good ethical players in the marketplace, not just the money grabbers who exploit their own people. They may have read Haynes' report, but there's a difference between reading and understanding. And I suppose backgrounding that, of course, they came out so badly in the Haynes report on mm. on uh, financial institutions. AMP was one of the, the worst. But then, just to bring it up to date and, and finish for the moment, because there's all sorts of things going on about that. But then last Thursday, or last, yes, last Thursday, the headline in the Financial Review, AMP Capital Reeling as Executives Walk, and AMP Capital has been dealt a blow by the departure of several key senior executives, including well-respected global head of property, Carmel Hoorigan, who was overlooked for the top job in favour of Bo Pahari. Mm. Along with Ms. Hoorigan, who has joined rival AXS AM Stock Exchange property group, Charter Hall, also leaving AMP Capital ahead of people and culture, Madeleine McMahon, 
global head of infrastructure, Dead Andrew Jones, and interim chief financial officer, Adrian Williams. So a lot of the staff are, mm. are taking action on it. And then in Mondays, which is today, of course, as, I, as we're recording Financial Review, there's a headline, um, AMP culture rife with bullying staff. And just a, yeah. a couple of quotes from that article to finish up on. A former software engineer in Sydney said there was a toxic and political culture across the business. You can feel it no matter what your level. An analyst at AMP's circular key office in Sydney said it was the worst organisation I've ever worked for, that bullying in some areas of the business is rife and it appears to be condoned by senior management and, and HR. There is still a boys club mentality in some areas. There is no focus on positive culture or communication or empowering workers. Uh, one AMP Capital staff member said the place needed to ensure workplace bullying and public humiliation were no longer tolerated. If you disagree with senior management on any issue, you'll be bullied in front of your peers and eventually forced out, as demonstrated by their high turnover rates, regardless of your seniority. Only those who go with the flow will see themselves promoted. Another said managers would focus on empire building by hiring friends rather than promoting based on merit and cited a poor bordering on Machiavellian handling of a sexual harassment case. So hmm. we'll finish there, but uh, it's ongoing and um, hmm. it does show, you know, it probably is a good, it probably exemplifies in microcosm a lot of what the big companies are all about. Yeah. I'm not surprised at all, you know, to hear that the culture of the organisation allegedly from these these reports is not, not healthy because, you know, it's always suspicious to me when companies say like, oh, we've promoted this person to a very senior position, um, but the way that they operate, we don't condone that. We don't agree with that. Um, like, well, if you didn't, you, you wouldn't promote that person. It's it's pretty straightforward. Like, if their culture, if the way they operate doesn't fit into the culture, they're not going to go to that place of, of seniority. Yep, exactly. Uh, and I think they, they're a good example of, uh, of what yeah. capitalism is all about, of course. I suppose that's, uh, yeah. that's, that's a given in some yeah. ways. Okay, now, just moving on, good news, though, on well, some bad news on the environment front as well. Nearly 50 different types of native animals should be added to Australia's threatened species list as a result of the bushfire season, according to a University of Queensland study. And it, it names a number of them, including the kangaroo island, Dunart, the long-footed potteroo, and Kate's leaf-tailed gecko, etc. But, but it's, it's quite, a again, worrying report. Mm. But on a more positive note for um, the climate, and this will upset Andrew Bolt no end, Greta Thunberg, the, um, the young woman, of course, we all know who she is, uh, she, she last week received a Portuguese Rights Award for her work for humanity, for the way she has been able to mobilise younger generations for the cause of climate change and her tenacious struggle to alter a status quo that persists. And it was a $1.42 million prize which she's giving to environmental groups to um, to work with so that's good news yeah but on the environment front as well Narrabri there's an inquiry at New South Wales at the moment going on into um, into a proposal by Santos at Narrabri for a coal seam gas project which has received enormous opposition all over the place and just before I go there the spate of liquefied natural gas write-downs that has hit Australian projects has given fresh ammunition to opponents of Santos' proposal. And as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there's um, the whole industry is facing all sorts of financial trouble from all sorts of areas, including the fact that uh, renewables are becoming so much cheaper. But the inquiry has received enormous um, opposition from local farmers and local community groups and local environmentalists. But in case you're wondering which way the financial review's coming down on this, they've decided <laughs> that once again, in, as far as climate change goes, the science is what matters. And they had an editorial last Tuesday of last week saying we should follow the science on coal seam gas. And just a couple of hints as to which way they're going. I'll let you work this one out yourself. <laughs> Amid the worst downturn since the Great Depression, Santos's 12-year Narrabri coal seam gas mine saga is approaching the final approval hurdle before New South Wales's Independent Planning Commission. Coal seam gas is an emotive issue for the implacable anti-Narrabri environmentalists and farming representatives who, along with assorted ragtag rural populists, 
will comprise the bulk of 404 stakeholders scheduled to speak at the IPC hearings over the next two weeks. Mm. However, the decision should be based not on a motion, but just as in responding to climate change, bushfires or pandemics on the science, which tells us that coal seam extraction is safe for the environment. To assist the economic recovery, neither extreme greenism, nor new age nimbyism, nor redneck populism, nor the complex green tape regulation Graham Samuel says unnecessarily delays major projects should be allowed to undercut Australia's return to prosperity. Oh, God. Okay, quick one. Can you work out which way that one's going? (laughs) (laughs) I've never never heard such neutral and fair reporting on an issue as that that you have just read out kevin that was it's certainly finely balanced isn't it (laughs) yes a finely balanced editorial that one (laughs) oh dear but unfortunately um it's um well in fact i mean it, it despite what they say and despite what santos says a number of of scientists have come out and i think it's pretty important to point them out the case put by Santos, backed by the New South Wales Planning Department, is that coal seam gas can be safely extracted from the deep coal seams, which are protected by several rock layers from shallower aquifers. They argue the extraction technique is unlikely to disturb the major fault lines and will protect the water from contamination and leakage. But two engineers told the Commission on the fourth day of hearings that key data was missing that showed coal seam gas drilling had the potential to seriously damage underground water systems. Both were closely questioned by the commissioners. Official modelling failed to assess data on the risk of water contamination from deep drilling, making it impossible to rule out with certainty, said Dr Keith Haley, uh, Kevin Haley, almost my name, an engineer from consultancy Groundwater Solutions who had been retained by the New South Wales Environment Defender's Office. A formal uncertainty analysis wasn't undertaken in the environmental impact statement because they didn't have the data, they didn't access the accessibility. There's nothing to show the permeality between the target coal layers and shallow aquifers in the data, which is critical in assessing the likely impact of coal seam gas production. Dr. Haley pointed to CSIRO modelling, which used the official data as a basis, but added more information relating to fault lines in rocks and sand. That showed those faults could carry chemicals and gas into clean water suppliers. The CSIROs show at least considerable Im- impact on groundwater. Associate Professor Matthew Currell from the RMIT University Engineering Department backed Dr Haley saying the risks to both groundwater quality and quantity were considerable. The area provides recharge for Australia's most important aquifer system, the Great Artesian Basin, and is close to the vitally important Namoy Alluvium. Dr. Currell said operating a large-scale project such as Narrabri involving 850 wells meant failures are really, really difficult to eliminate. A lot of it's due to equipment failure or just human error. Sometimes, you know, freak weather events will cause natural conditions that make it really hard to control. He dismissed Santos's position that remaining uncertainties over groundwater impacts could be resolved after the project was approved. That's a wonderful offer, isn't it? Oh, boy, yeah. You'll say, we'll approve it, then we'll work out how we're going to handle the water problem. Yeah. Without proper field investigations, numerical modelling is unreliable for um, impact predictions. Now, in some of the earlier hearings, also farmers had said they were concerned that it could also cause fire problems at the nearby Pilliga State Forest because there's massive things shooting out the top of the gas project. Right. Right. And Greg Mullins, whom we had yeah. had an interview with him on the show, the fire chief, who's very good in these things, he gave evidence and said it raised concerns about the fire risk presented by a gas project in the Pilliga State Forest. He said Sandoz's estimate of the risk of bushfire from the project to be one fire in a thousand years appeared to have no basis. The Pilliga in northwest New South Wales is becoming increasingly flammable and subject to extreme fire weather. Gas flares and general mining activities introduce many new potential ignition sources, which is irresponsible, he said. So, hmm. And that the locals have been screaming and yelling. And anyway, it, it's ongoing. The, the hearings are continuing, so we'll keep our eye on it. But it's... Um, yeah, it's a good summary of what's happening there. Yeah. Yeah, and there's two aspects of it now. I think one aspect is that, one, it's, it's dangerous for the environment, but secondly, the whole idea of these projects in the current economic environment when 
they're becoming less and less economically viable, even for the companies themselves. Yeah. Similar to the one we talked about a couple of weeks ago at um, in Westernport, which um, is mm. being proposed down there by AGL. I think if we've learned anything from capitalism, it's that short-term profits at the expense at any expense upon the environment is perfectly okay with that with that system with that ideology. Um, but Kevin, I do have to interrupt because our guest is here. Right. Okay. I just want to finish with one one comment. There was a one of the um, one of the persons giving evidence was Dr. Bea Bleel, B-L-E-I-L-E, a mathematician. She's at uh, one of the unis in New South Wales, but she's also part of the Knitting Nanas group. <laughs> and the, after she'd given evidence, there was a feature article about her in the Financial Review in which they painted her as a, a socialist. She'd been a member of socialist groups and they tried to down, you know, put her down <gasps> because she, she obviously was an incredibly biased woman. Yes, poor Yeah, thing. right. Wow. Okay, we've got Josh on the line. Okay, look, we'll take a break then. City Limits, we're going to come back and talk to Josh Cohenan from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union after this break and uh, talk about his background and the background of the union. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Okay, back on City Limits, and uh, we've got our guest today, um, Josh Cumminan, who's from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. And Josh, we got you on, we'll talk about some of the specific issues shortly, but particularly, I was asked a question a couple of weeks ago by a friend who's active in unions who said, how did he get it going and how does he get standing in the courts, etc.? So can you give us some of perhaps your personal background and how you got this union up and running? Yeah, sure. So we launched in 2016 in the latter part. We officially launched on the 21st of November 2016. My backstory is that I worked in Woolies and in service stations in the um, mid-90s and while I was studying at university. And I then went and worked for a series or a couple of different unions. I had worked as a basically an organiser and community development worker with the uh, YCW in Melbourne, and I then went and worked with the CFMEU um, as a research and industrial officer and did that for two and a half years and then went to the NTEU, the National Tertiary Education Union, for 12 years. During that time, I continued to try and help organise, motivate, um, agitate and educate retail and fast food workers through a variety of different ways, trying to get them together to talk about their issues, helping established the Young Unionist Network at Victorian Trades Hall um, and then helping out a little bit with uh, a union that was started, Unite, in Melbourne that uh, that wound up in 2016. So I was trying to do those things while I was doing my, um, my day job and then in 2015 I helped a worker, Duncan Hart, who's a Coles worker in Brisbane, run an appeal against the approval of the Coles agreement at the time and that was after I'd done some work exposing how many workers were worse off but the Fair Work Commission approved it anyway. So that's sort of the backstory to where we came to. After Duncan won his appeal, there was a group of retail and fast food workers and activists and supporters who came together and tried to think through, well, what's the next stage now? And the, for, for their own reasons, uh, in June 2016, uh, the SDA refused to accept, so they're the legacy union that had fought against the appeal. And the, sorry, just, the SDA is the Shop Assistance Union, or Association, they call themselves, actually, but yeah. Yeah, the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association. So they had fought against us uh, with their legal teams, with Coles during that case, and they refused to accept the fundamental underlying premise that came through the Coles decision, and that was that workers had been ripped off for decades under rotten old deals, costing workers billions. And we... Um, came together and decided that there needed to be a long-term systemic response to ensure that 
this one case win didn't get eventually swept under the carpet and workers continue to be ripped off. And the only way that unionists can do that is to form a union and have workers organise and take direct and militant action to secure better outcomes. So we did that and we formed as an uh, incorporated association in Victoria. Um, And so that's just under the Incorporated Associations Act. And we registered as a registered Australian body, which is basically a not-for-profit body registration system that's set up by ASIC under the Corporations Act that allows Victorian incorporated associations to operate interstate. And so we took those two steps and then uh, we launched on the 21st of November in 2017. There's a variety of different ways that we appear or we represent our members in a practical sense. In the work choices era, 20 odd years ago, 15 years ago, a large number of workplace rights were individualised by conservative governments, uh, firstly by Keating and um, some of the changes in the 90s, and then certainly by the Howard era, a range of rights were individualised. Things like having a bargaining representative, uh, having a representative in award proceedings and in disputes. And so what we've done is we've effectively taken those individual rights and collectivised them. So a good example is at Coles Supermarkets, Uh, we represent members in bargaining, not automatically, like other registered organisations of employees might do. Uh, We represent members because they appoint us as their bargaining representative. And at the moment, there's about 250 workers that have appointed the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union as their bargaining representative. When it comes to disputes or to disciplinary matters, well, most employers allow support people no matter where they're from, you know, whether it's a mum, a dad, a RAFWU or um, some other organisation. Most employers allow support persons for disciplinary processes. In retail and fast food, there aren't documented and detailed processes laid out in agreements or awards. It largely falls to policy positions, uh, which are sometimes written out and often not. And we find that, you know, we we operate in a professional sense. It's not like we go in and we turn over tables and we upend computers. What we do is we just operate as the support person for our member. We attend, we provide them the support they need. Um, Sometimes that involves speaking on their behalf. Uh, We take notes and we prepare litigation afterwards if employers do the wrong thing. So all of that is done as a support person like anyone else would. And in disputes, the disputes clauses in the award and in the agreements have to provide for representation. And again, that's by anyone. And so we take that up as the union with expert advocates and lawyers and others that are our staff. They represent members in those disputes um, right through to the Fair Work Commission. And we've taken disputes through and had resolutions in the Fair Work Commission as the representative under the agreement or under the award. When it comes to enforcing rights, our rights are somewhat more limited. We cannot prosecute a breach of an agreement as the union. We can do a range of things, which I'll get to, uh, but we can't, as RAFWU, prosecute a breach of the Woolworths Enterprise Agreement. Uh, whereas a registered organisation of employees that is covered by that agreement, so they've gone through those steps, then they can um, prosecute breaches. But of course, in retail and fast food, agreement and award breaches are rarer than hen's teeth. We're not aware of a single case where an agreement breach at Coles or at Woolworths or at you know, McDonald's have ever been prosecuted by the SDA because that's not what they do. They've got relationships with employers. They don't sue them. What we can do is we can support our members in their prosecutions. So, for example, we've just been um, in June. We were in the federal court with a member where they were prosecuting McDonald's, a franchisee in Queensland, for not providing them paid rest breaks. And so our member is prosecuting them and we're supporting them in that. What we can prosecute is a whole range of breaches related to the general protections. And so in that same case, there's the prosecution from our great member, Kira, and then there's seven or eight prosecutions by RAFWU, where we're prosecuting misrepresentations about the workplace rights to sick leave, to being getting these rest breaks. We're prosecuting threats in relation to the employer 
threatening workers that if they take their paid rest break, they won't get access to toilets or water. We're prosecuting coercion in relation to that as well, because we say that's a form of coercion on these very young workers. So we can prosecute those general protections rights. And then we support our members in prosecuting their individual workplace rights. And so that's how we've been basically able to bring together a set of industrial service type objectives. Our overarching um, desire, though, is to facilitate and engage our members in forms of direct action. And the Fair Work Act is clear. There's no particular special entitlement to a registered organisation of employees in bargaining as compared to what RAFU is, a union established as an incorporated association and registered as an Australian body. And so as a bargaining representative, we effectively have all the same rights to represent members in bargaining, to appear before the Fair Work Commission in relation to the agreement, to support our members in terminating a related agreement when bargaining is underway, to seeking good faith bargaining orders, which we secured historic bargaining orders against Domino's at the start of 2018. So we can do all those things just like anyone else as a bargaining representative under the Act. And most importantly, we can obtain and secure protected action ballots and then support our members that we represent as their bargaining representative in industrial action because at the end of the day, a union is measured by the industrial action that its members take and are supported to take. And we unequivocally want to move into that space to ensure our members start to secure the terms and conditions that they've long been denied in retail and fast food. And we know that they'll only do that through direct and militant industrial action in the workplace. So, Josh, does that mean that um, individual workers sort of have to decide whether they want to join the shopkeepers union or join the retail and fast food workers union? And can you explain, like, if you cover all the same areas or if the shopkeepers union covers other areas apart from retail and fast food? Yeah, so um, the SDA does cover some other areas. For example, they cover beauticians and beauty therapy and hairdressers. Um, They say they cover warehousing and a range of other types of employment. Uh, We, when we launched, we looked at their coverage and we made some specific decisions. And and they were that there is a great union in warehousing. Uh, There's probably a few. But the main great union in warehousing is the NUW, now part of the United Workers Union. We don't want to in any way undermine the great work that they do. The SDA already does that very well, undermining their great work. So we deliberately didn't include warehousing. Uh, We deliberately didn't include any fast food that serves alcohol because, again, the United Voice or the MISOs or the LHMU is a democratic union that workers can participate in that is able to deal with those sectors. We decided not to include beauty or or hairdressing because they were, in some ways, uh, specific trade-based employment. And we decided that we wanted to be able to be clear on retail and fast food and not start diving into the services industries. And so we didn't include those. Now, uh, in terms of interaction between all of that, we also specifically encourage workers that are meat workers and meat packers to join the Meat Workers Union and not RAFWU. Um, so there are sort of differences in coverage between, between the two unions. The vast majority of the membership of the SDA is allocated. Over 90% of their members are in Coles Group, Wes Farmers Group and Woolworths Group. And so it's in those major retailers and major and, and some of their supply chain where, where the vast majority of their members lie. So historically, have those organisations encouraged their staff to join the SDA? Do you know? Oh, so um, in terms of historically, when I was when I started at Woolies, I was encouraged to join the SDA in 1993. Before that, there were years of compulsory unionism where where workers were beyond encouraged. Now that continued. Uh, we had this. Uh, I, I didn't see it coming, but in 2017, we had a Senate inquiry. We had we've had a series that we participated in, where we had a group of members, about seven members, that appeared before the Senate inquiry, and one of the senators asked them how they came to joined the SDA before they resigned and joined RAFWI. And each one of them, one after the other, said that their manager had told them to join. And so th- yeah. this is in recent times. These are young workers that, you know, only in the last five or six years had started in retail or fast food. And then one after the other, they said, I was played the video and then told by my manager to join. It was given with my superannuation and tax declaration form and I was told to sign all the forms and return them. Yeah. The SDA is invited into all the inductions at Coles and at Woolies. They're given lists of people to recruit. Um, so even if the manager doesn't do it, 
workers are confronted on the shop floor trying to do their first or second shift with someone standing there with a pen and a, and a, and a card saying, oh, no, you need, to, you need to join this. And we hear all sorts of stories of workers told that they only get health and safety cover, they only get work cover if they're a member of the SDA and things like this, because it's mm-hmm. hardline recruitment agents that are, that are recruiting people. They're not organisers or unionists in the ordinary sense. So that it's no longer compulsory. Um, workers get to make a choice, but for, work, for very young workers in their first job, often in casual employment, asked by their manager, it's, it's not the sort of choice that most of us would have. But then a lot of workers are finding out about us. We still have every day. We have workers who say, I've never heard of you. You know, tell us a bit about yourselves. And we, we, we understand that. But in a practical sense, we're in hundreds of coal stores now. We're in hundreds of woolly stores. We've got 2,500 members across the country in four years. So the more and more work that we do and the more activities we run, the more people find out about us. And very many of them now are making a better decision uh, to be a member of RAFWORK. Yeah, on that point, Josh, uh, given that these people, you know, the people in those industries haven't known real unionism for eons, if ever. How did you go about recruiting and what's been the reaction of people who've joined? Uh, so there's been a few different elements. Um, so historically, the SDA and up to this day maintains a very conservative social uh, policy on a range of what they would consider moral issues. So when we launched, we had a large group of very active, very interested workers that were uh, maybe queer or um, who were active in the women's movement, um, who knew that the SDA was a long-term bastion of anti-abortion legislation and anti-gay rights and against IVF and stem cell research and a whole range of other things. And they knew about that through their own investigations. Well, when I, when I was young, they were all known as groupers, of course. So, uh, yes, that was very much... Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. And when I went for a job interview with them in 2002, I was told straight up I'd have to join the ALP and I'd have to vote against abortion rights and I'd have to vote against gay rights. And, and the 2007 law reform inquiry into abortion rights, they put in a written submission. 2012, gay marriage, you know, marriage equality, again, they put in a written submission. So, that, so they've, these things are in writing, which is good to be able to share with workers. But so in terms of uh, we're, sorry, I've I've lost track there. What was the uh, what was the question? Well, it's about recruiting and the attitude of people once you recruited them and how you got them in. Yeah, yeah. So we had this group off the back of understanding about that social conservatism. Um, we had this group when we first launched who got involved straight away. So the first hundred or one hundred and fifty members, many of them knew about SDA and they were making a choice to choose RAFWU instead which was great, you know, really supportive of that. And that was a a great way for the union to launch. And then over time, social media has played a very large role in being able to share our stories, stories of workers. We have taken, in terms of bargaining, we've had bargaining right across the sectors. And so we've been able to share what bargaining representation means and workers have been learning a bit about that. But also in all of these employers where the first union to ever take workers off the shop floor. So, for example, at Woolies, there'd never been a supermarkets worker at a Woolies bargaining session until 2017 when we took five. There'd never been Coles workers at bargaining. There'd never been Bunnings, Office Works, McDonald's. They'd never actually had a shop worker. It was always the old white men in their suits and blue ties. And so that in itself allowed for them to start talking about how this works, what it's like, what's going on, what their claims are. And that obviously spreads the message. And that, and slowly but surely, that got the story out. And then as we grew a little bit in 2017, we were able to employ some staff. Um, so, for, for example, for me and a lot of the others, we were working for free for the first year. But then we're able to start employing staff, organisers to work with members. And that has then allowed us to work on a range of campaigns. It's the hard slog, but it's the only path to building a sustainable union. And that is talking with workers about the issue that's important to them. So safety in their workplace because the the bailer or the crusher out the back doesn't work or because there's no security guards. We ran the big campaign at Moorabbin. Um, Woolworths because they got rid of their security guards and workers were being assaulted to basic simple campaigns and we combined that with expert industrial support but then the word got out and slowly but surely we've just maintained constant net membership growth every month since we launched and we just go about that that hard slog so we're not we run our social media campaigns and people get involved through those things but we're not running you know great big sort of advertising campaigns on Sky or, or the Murdochs like SDA now does. 
Uh, we don't have billboards out. We don't, you know, money doesn't get spent on those things. We don't have it, but it's not our focus. Our focus is really building that industrial level militancy at the workplace, which starts with one member and then they become a delegate with their co-workers and with small actions, slowly and slowly building to, to larger actions. That's the hard way of building unions, but it's the only way of building a sustainable union that's, that's got a, a story of militant fighting. It sounds like it's kind of a bold move in, in an industry that's been, very, sounds like it's been very dominated by the SDA and the SDA has had this very friendly relationship with the bosses. And so, yeah, a bold move. And I'm guessing that one of the other challenges might be that people in retail and fast food might look upon their jobs as temporary and for that reason might not be concerned with long-term change and of wages and conditions and things like that. Is that an issue as well? Uh, well, there's a couple of different elements because even though a lot of workers see it as transitional for some of them, we're not sort of spruiking the long-term change as the objective to shop floor workers because it's it's too far out there. Like it's it's more basic than that. Like you know, right now you don't you're having a roster change which is not suiting your uni timetable, or right now you're being required to do two IC work or management work and you're not being paid for it. What what can we do about that? You know, you're staying back 15 minutes every shift or a half an hour every shift. Can we help fix that? You know, and so our our campaigns are much more basic. Are much more focused and so that means that even those that see it as a transitional pathway still can see some value in it uh, w- no doubt we're up against a fight of both the reframing of what is a union and what it is to be in a union done by the howard era but also a lot of workers that have been dismayed by their experience it's not just that that these deals have been cut and they've lost so much it's that if they have the sda attend a, a support meeting with them they'll side with the boss um, they'll tell them there's nothing that can be done about this case or this dispute or this issue. And so they just don't have any faith. And it sets the bar very, very low. And we're, and we're you know, proudly smashing it every time that the support we're able to provide is so far ahead. So, so in terms of the sort of campaigning and, and, the, and the, the action, that has been really quite straightforward for a lot of these workers to engage in. And very young workers as well have some freedoms that um, lots of other workers don't. They don't necessarily have the same commitments that others and they've got the capacity to engage in more directed militant forms of action that others might not. Um, They're able to take a few risks that others might not. But these employers as well, in terms of the bold move, these employers have slowly been able to see RAFLU as a professional organisation that does what it does responsibly and directly, they know they're going to face a fight. They know we're going to call them out. We're going to publish that social media or send that email or speak to that journalist. But they get that. But they also know that we're going to behave responsibly and we're going to have a, an honest and upfront conversation and we're going to involve our members in that. And so over time, they start to recognise, you know, it took four years for Woolworths to update their internal advice through HR to managers that workers could be represented by RAFWI. Mm. They didn't like it. The first meeting I attended in 2017, I was told by the HR person in no uncertain terms that the SDA is their approved and authorised union. And of course, I laughed and said, well, you know, we're not going anywhere. But it's taken years for them to get their head around that we're not going anywhere. And more and more workers are choosing RAFWU. So, yeah. It's lovely to see bosses, though, supporting unions, isn't it? (laughs) Josh, this one's a tough question. It'll take you a while to think up the answer. But... When you won the right for workers to get penalty rates and broke that nexus between the other union and the bosses, the big retailers, Woolworths, Domino's, all those people said it's going to cost them millions of dollars a year and they might even have to cut staff because of that. But those millions represented, I imagine, what they'd been stealing for years. Is that Would that be the case? Yes. So... What, what, what we did wasn't, wasn't really groundbreaking. Ever since the SDA and Wes Farmers and others have, have called it a change in 2016, but it wasn't a change and, and even the president of the commissions had to come out and say there was no change. All we did was expose what had been going on. And so for four years, we've now seen the overturning of all of those agreements and rewriting or, or getting rid of. So we got rid of the agreements in Domino's and McDonald's and all the others have been rewriting new agreements. And they've just simply been returning the minimum wage. Like at Kmart, you get one cent per hour more than the absolute minimum wage during the week. And it's the same at Hungry Jack's and lots of other places. At Coles, it's five cents per hour more. At Woolworths, it's a, it's a bit more than that, 10 cents per hour more. It's not much. But otherwise, it is just the absolute minimum wage and absolute minimum penalty rates. 
Uh, and we know that cost for Woolworth supermarkets over $200 million a year. At Coles, it's over $100 million a year, $140 million a year at McDonald's. So all up, it's returned about a billion dollars a year in penalty rates and, and casual loadings. Domino's didn't have casual loading. Like if you were a casual, you didn't, you didn't get leave, but you didn't get a casual loading. And the SDA had helped perpetuate that for a decade. Mm. So we know that we've returned about a billion dollars a year. In fact, it provided a really simple base for our first few years. Our campaigns were about returning those penalty rates, and we could. It wasn't a difficult case, really. But it got held up, and it took a long time. But what we've been able to do over four years is return a billion dollars per year in, in those kinds of conditions. How were they not paying those penalty rates? Was it an enterprise agreement? Yes. So they cut enterprise agreements time and time again. There was a research paper written in 2001 where this RMIT academic interviewed a HR professional from Woolworths and they just said straight up after they got their 90, 93 or 94 deal with the SDA, their auditors did an assessment and they'd saved 8% from the state awards. And, and that's what then just got rolled out and rolled through. And the commission was just misled for decades about the impact of these agreements and that they were actually paying a lot of workers less than the minimum. Mm. It's funny because I remember as a younger person here, like friends working and being kind of like, yeah, I'm getting tw- I'm, not, I'm getting $12 an hour. I'm not getting any more on the weekend. And just like when you're young and you just think, ah, oh, yeah, you're going to get, you know, this is the way that it's like in fast food. But this doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, yeah. So we've got members at Burwood East uh, Coles that do night fill and I sat down with one of them and he explained over 20 years his wage had gone up by $100, so from $750 to $850 or something like that, uh, over 20 years. And then with the new agreement in 2018 that brought back the penalty rates, it went up by $250 overnight. So so the, the cuts were done in stages and in different ways. I remember meeting with uh, young women that were working at Melbourne Central in 2003 and, and the SDA had, over, in a new agreement, had cut their Saturday rates by 25%. And so their wages went down. Mm. I think there's an article recently about Woolworths where the Sunday penalty rates that, that were embedded by the SDA when we were fighting for restoration in 2018, they embedded these cuts. Again, workers' wages going down for the week. It's just outrageous. And that's what that's that restoration for very many workers saw massive. Some workers have lost, they've lost houses, hundreds of thousands of dollars over their working life because these agreements were smashing their penalty rates, overnight rates, overtime rates, casual rates, all sorts of conditions. And the international students um, situation, the the UNSW and the Uni of Technology up there in Sydney, they surveyed 2,700 students recently report came out early this month and concluded three in four international student workers are underpaid and one in four are earning less than half the minimum rate with the exploitation likely to get worse during the economic recovery and they say almost 50% of international students aged 20 and over told the study last year they were paid $17 an hour or less below the minimum wage while 77% earned below 23.66 minimum rate about 26% were paid just $12 an hour or less and then they the students go on to say they're too frightened to complain. That's still a serious problem, obviously, Josh. Oh, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And, it's, and it manifests in even some of the large retail, like the, the management structures that can save a buck. They will, where they can save a buck. We, we find that where the money goes directly back into the pocket of the owner, it's worse. So, for example, at uh, major retailers, they employ systems of wage theft. But if the dollar that the manager saves doesn't go into their pocket, it's not as bad as a franchisee or a another form of business where the person exploiting the worker gets the actual direct benefit. Like lots of McDonald's employers, uh, franchisees that have, but they're, they're small. Their businesses they have a thousand employees across their seven franchisees sites, and every dollar they save goes back in their pocket. So, so those systems of exploitation are worse, especially where workers are casualised, where they're young, and then once you add into the international student dimension, that is that. They rely on it to be able to not only survive and feed themselves and maybe send money home, but also to be able to get the hours up and the arrangements up for future visa applications. Uh, it just it just amplifies the exploitation. And so it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue right across that cohort. We're on City Limits on 3CR. We're talking to Josh Cullen and from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. And we've got about five minutes left of the show, Kevin, and I'm sure you probably have a lot more questions for Josh. Well, I do. On that last point, this report from the uni also, they recommend increasing funding for legal assistance on campuses 
better enforcement from the Fair Work Ombudsman, removing work hour limits for student visas to reduce fear of complaining and setting up a new forum to expedite wage recovery. But so many of these things are found by the Fair Work Ombudsman and it seems to me that wouldn't be necessary if workers were all in the union. If they were in a fighting union, that's actually going to stand if up. That's, well, yes, in a, in, a, in a real union, yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's right. I, I think that, that, that there's a fundamental problem with power. So we find the same issue with the members that are international students and with members that are casual and with members that are very young, 15 and 16. You know, the same sorts of issues that it is very difficult to raise concern with the employer. And so, you know, litigation is one form, which the Fair Work Ombudsman should be doing a great deal more of and just isn't. But there must be amnesties. I think any any worker that suffers the sort of injustices that we hear about all the time for international students, there, there must be an amnesty to provide them protection from either potentially being in breach of their student visa from working too many hours and being deported or not being able to secure the permanent residency they may be aspiring to. So we need to have amnesties and protections in place for that and that's what will drive the sorts of change that we need to see. I and mean, certainly, you know, strong fighting unions, but, but in, in the short term, a combination of factors is probably the short term solution. And if there's like a lot of overlap in terms of staff of retail and fast food are often also maybe university students or students in tertiary educational vocational education, then unions on campus as well would have a part to play with that, but have obviously been really affected by how it's voluntary student unionism in the 2000s. So do you notice anything about that? So there's some great activists um, involved in student unions on campus. Unfortunately, some of those student unions too quickly become a plaything of political parties. And I think that whilst fantastic for organising student action and for progressive campaigns on campus, the short turnaround in basically electoral cycles that you have new teams every year or two um, means that some of the campaigns for dealing with workplace issues are often not sustained. But I I think that workplace organising at the workplace and outside the workplace, so whether that's collectively on campus or in other places uh, where they're able to get together, still needs to be run out by unions that are democratic, that have leadership from members and that are uh, accountable to their members. And that's what we're suffering from in in retail and fast food um, in the past. We've also, of course, just in the past week, seen the government announce it's going to cut back on JobKeeper and JobSeeker. And this is going to affect the one estimate is two and a half million workers will come off JobKeeper. Uh, Are these people just going to be left in in the lurch somewhere? Yeah, it's going to have a massive impact in a lot of retail and in some of fast food. So retailers that have been holding on, basically, are being able to staff off the taxpayer and will are holding on through till September, will will have to make some hard decisions about their future viability. There'll be there's also been a lot of part-time and casual workers, all this demonization from well, both major political parties, that there's something wrong with workers who are part-time or casual getting $7.50 a week. I mean, still well below the Australian living wage, but because they've not done that many hours in the past, that they weren't earning that much in the past, that's just garbage and nonsense. So there'll be a lot of people who will see massive cuts in their wages. And I expect a lot of these employers will be standing down part-time and casual workers over the foreseeable future. And so it'll have a massive impact. And equally again, the return of the poverty rates for, for social security are just going to, a lot of our members rely on various parts of the social security framework as well. They, they earn not enough or it's so irregular that they need to rely on Centrelink social security payments. So the cuts to that for, with JobSeeker as well are a disaster and going to have a massive impact on our members. Well, we had, we had that identifying situation last week where the federal Labor leader actually came out and said that workers should get less if they were getting less before. I mean, quite a remarkable comment from a Labor leader. Oh, I don't know how remarkable it is. but Oh, well, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> I was being nice. Yeah, it's an outrageous comment and it should never have been said and grossly mistakes the place of the working poor in Australia, the low-paid workers in retail, fast food, hospitality and other industries. It's just, it was a woeful thing to say. No doubt, well, I hope that that they regret it. But, you know, we need to be moving towards a living income for all. 
And for us, that means a base rate of $25 per hour. And that's, and that's where we've moved now our campaigns. Having returned a billion dollars per annum in penalty rates, we're now focused on a $25 per hour base rate for everyone, no matter their age, no matter their disability, no matter their trainee status, a $25 per hour base rate can be afforded. And it's something that we're moving towards. Mm. Have to wind up there. But look, thanks so much, Josh, for coming on today and explaining all that because people have been asking the sort of questions we've asked and um, I hope we've answered them. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, so I'll add in that Josh has joined us from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union and if people are listening and they want to join their union, if they work in retail or fast food, we'll put the information up on our podcast and on the website 3cr.org.au slash city limits and Josh if people are listening now and want to get involved how might they do that? The easiest way to get involved is to go to our website at rafwoo.org.au that's r-a-f-w-u.org.au there's lots of ways to get involved to join up to contact us that's the best portal. Excellent. Cool. All right we have to wind up I think we should mention again we only mention occasionally but the magnificent work being done during this crisis by the staff at 3CR just to keep all these programs on air and I think they deserve an incredible uh, vote of thanks from everybody. Absolutely. I miss them all. I miss being in the station and it's good to be able to still connect with everybody and and, uh, have these fantastic guests and learn so much about everything that's happening. Power to the workers and thank you to Karina for all of your work. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.